0: How are you guys today? You guys enjoy your extra hour of sleep? It's good? It's good, right? I need one of those like once a month. If we could just do the clock thing once a month, that would be awesome. Uh, I, I feel uh, a little more rested up. Uh, I want to talk today about sex. So we're going to just talk about that the whole time, okay? So I just want to let you know Uh, I probably don't even need to give you much of an intro to get you into this topic. Already, you're like, oh, really? That's what we're talking about. So there's um, probably a lot of interest there. There's a lot of opinions we have on the topic. There's a lot of landmines I could step in as I talk about it. Um, So that kept me up at night. Um, But sex is something that is very much... uh, at our core, it's, it's very much something we believe to be essential to kind of who we are as human beings, and we have a lot of opinions about a lot of the issues surrounding that. We're not going to get into all the issues surrounding that. This is only one message. We'll talk about it again. I have a series next year in mind, what we'll do in 2018, called Taboo, where we'll go through a couple hot-button issues, and we'll kind of get into more of that uh, next year. But for the purpose of this series, we've been looking at ancient answers to modern problems. And talking about what are modern issues that we have and what is an ancient solution to them. Because a lot of our modern problems, whether it's sex or last week we talked about work. Next week we're going to talk about technology. A lot of times these modern problems sort of present themselves in a very modern way. Like, ooh, no one's ever dealt with this before. But underneath those modern problems are really ancient problems. And there are some ancient solutions to those. And so we're looking back in order to inform ourselves and help us navigate the culture that we live in today. And so if I could articulate what is the modern problem in our culture around sex, what what would that be? Well, there's a lot of things you could probably point to, but I was trying to boil it down into something neat and clean. And basically, uh, as I see it, and, and maybe you see it this way too, our culture is sexually conflicted and confused. Um, and our culture sends a lot of mixed messages about sex, about who should or shouldn't be having it, what it's for, in what context. Uh, Our our, our culture sort of sends a lot of mixed messages, so I wanted to take some time to sort of dive into that, and I want to dive in particularly here up front into like the how we got there, like if, if our culture is a certain way, how do we get to the point that we're at right now? What are the sort of the underlying values and beliefs and philosophies that we have that drive what we believe about a lot of things in America, especially what we believe about sex? And I think there's three, three kind of threads that I want to pull out here that are, that are fundamental to American culture. Number one is the concept of freedom. We talked about this about three weeks ago in a message called A New Kind of Slavery. You can go back and listen to that message. That was all about freedom. But baked into American life is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This idea that we are supposed to do whatever we want, whenever we want. We said a few weeks ago, that is sort of the modern idea of freedom. I can do what I want, whenever I want. And that is so... That is such a a pervasive attitude in America that that we don't even realize how American that idea is. We just think of it, maybe in the Western world, we think of it that way we just think this is what it means to be human, when the reality is the idea that I can do what I want, whatever I want, and no one should be able to impose anything on me, that's a pretty, within the last 100 years, sort of very modern idea. Um, I mean, there's roots to it before that, but, but that's kind of where we are right now. We have this really strong idea of freedom that no one should impose any of their stuff on me, which takes us to a second idea that's underneath American culture, and it is authenticity. So if freedom is, I can do what I want, whatever I want, authenticity is the idea that I, I'm going to be true to myself. It's very important for us in our culture to be true to ourselves. Do what you want to do. You do you. You look out for you. Take care of you. Take care of yourself. Self-care. All of these ideas. And not all of that is bad. And I'm not saying all of this stuff is bad. But that's the way it is in our culture. We really value being authentic. The idea that you would be inauthentic or not true to yourself is like one of the worst sins you could commit in America. Oh, don't be, you know, not true to yourself. You need to be true to you, take care of you, follow your heart, that that kind of idea. Um, And so the idea of anything outside you, uh, family, tradition, religion, any of that stuff telling you what to do, Uh, We we really buck against that a lot, and we're like, no, that's not right. In fact, um, Charles Taylor, who's a writer and and a sort of philosopher, and and he he, he really writes well about the state of, of Western culture. Listen to what he says. For many people today, to set aside their own path in order to conform to some external authority just doesn't seem comprehensible as a form of spiritual life. The injunction is, in the words of a speaker at a New Age festival, only accept what rings true to your own inner self. Self with a capital S. Like, that's a thing. Like, only accept what rings true to your own inner self. That, that's kind of the authenticity spirit of the age that we live in. This is partly why people say they don't like organized religion. You've probably heard that before. Uh, oh, I don't, like, I don't really like organized religion. And I understand when people say that, what they mean. Because organized religion, historically, has done some bad things and we can think about what they are, we can talk about crusades or whatever. We can we can look at things throughout history and say, oh yeah, that's bad, and organized religion's bad. I, I, I get that. But often when people are saying they don't like organized religion, they kind of mean this authenticity thing. What they mean is, I don't like any external input telling me what I should or shouldn't do. I don't like this outside set of values imposed on me, um, trying to force me to be something or 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 to work its will over me. I'd rather be... Sort of self-defining, self-authoring, and uh, and so I want to be, you know, authentic. And that's often what people mean when they say that they don't like organized religion. Um, so those two main ideas, and then there's one more idea underneath it in our culture that's a big thing, and that is consumerism. So if freedom is I can do whatever I want... And authenticity is I'm going to be true to myself, then consumerism is like grease on that fire. it is the the, the, the flame that goes underneath that that drives those things. Consumerism is hey i can I, I have millions of options I can take a little bit of here and I can buy the things that I want to satisfy me so I can do what I want and I want to follow my heart and and our our culture, our capitalist driven culture, comes along and says, oh we we want you to be true to you. We want you to follow your heart. We want you to, to have whatever you want. In fact, we'll sell it to you. Like we can sell, not happiness, but we can at least sell pleasure to you. And we'll come up with ways to sell it. And so you may think that sounds like an oversimplification, but think about all the advertising that you've heard in our culture. Um, you deserve this. You deserve a break today. What's in your wallet, right? All, the, all this advertising that's built around the idea that it's really all about you you, 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 you get what you want. You get what you deserve, right? That's the way our culture teaches. And that's very hard. If you're a follower of Jesus and, and, and you believe in the Christian worldview, you believe then that, that the world is not about you, that your life isn't even about you, that God, it's about God. And so to become a Christian, you have to first say, it's not all about me. And all of our culture and advertising and other things screams at you, no, it's all about you. And that's a, that's, that's a pretty, pretty strange thing like historically, but that's where we're at. So freedom, authenticity, and consumerism. Now, if you pull all three of those ideas together and, and put them in the context of sex, I think you will start to understand why we have the culture that we have today take freedom, authenticity, and consumerism all together sexually, and you'll get things like a hookup culture. You'll get things like, hey, I want to have sex uh, with this other person. They want to as well. Consent is all we need. It's the only rule that we're going to live by is if there's consent, fine. I want to do that. You want to do that. Good. We're in the mood. I want to be true to myself. Um, You get this kind of hookup culture. Now, we're now, sometimes we're going to call it other things. I've, I've seen uh, articles lately of people being very unfaithful to their girlfriend or their spouse or whatever, and they refer to themselves as polyamorous, which is great if you can give it a name for that now. Like, it's like, oh, so you're polyamorous. Oh, like, like it's a condition. But that's kind of like where we're at in society right now. It's, it's a perfectly great extension of a consumer. Like I, wanna, I want options. I want to keep my options open. So we have, that, we have that sort of thing going on sexually because of those philosophical underpinnings. We also have uh, an epidemic around pornography in this country, uh, and, and really in, in the world right now, where, where um, it's sort of the ultimate consumer view of sex. It's like, I get choices. 90% of pornography on, on the internet, it's free. So I've got all this free stuff that I can get, millions of options of different things to look at and enjoy, um, and it's damaging us as, as people, and it's creating all sorts of other problems in society. And if I sound like a prude or I sound naive or whatever, it's not just me or religious people that are saying it. There are plenty of secular sources right now that are saying, hey, we have a problem here that we're raising generations on this stuff. And then And then you see where that goes. You see Um, the Me Too hashtag that came out a couple weeks ago. Some of you, maybe most of you know what that is, but for those of you who don't, women were posting on social media, Me Too, and they were were saying, hey, I have been either sexually harassed or sexually abused. And I saw that, and I was really saddened by it. I was like, oh, this is awful. It's also, uh, I think... uh, partly a result of of a pornography culture, of a culture that encourages us to look at another human being who has a soul, who has dignity, who has been created in the image of God, and just break that person apart and fragment them into parts that we want to look at and use for our own gratification. We do that with a screen, and then sometimes it translates over into how we treat real relationships with real people um, out in the world, and you get harassment and other things that that have come out of that. So I think there's a lot of uh, a darkness and a lot of problems that have, that have come out of, out of our, our culture's values of freedom, authenticity, and con- consumerism. Um, it also means we have a lower commitment to marriage, people getting married later. And that's a tough one because freedom says, I can do what I want whenever I want, but I also desire to be intimate, to be connected with someone, to, as our culture would say, to have a soulmate. I desire that, but I also have this thing going on that I shouldn't be tied down. And so you get this very conflicted message of don't be tied down, keep all your options open, yet find a soulmate who can tie you down and will not have all your options open. And it becomes this very sort of conflicted thing that we're living in right now, and, and it's a challenge. So let me point you to an ancient view that speaks to some of that modern, some of that modern stuff. Uh, a guy named Paul wrote a, a chunk of the New Testament in the first century, and he was a Roman citizen who lived in Judea, and then he eventually traveled around the, around the Mediterranean and ended up in Rome planting churches. And Paul, um, he, he gives some challenging ideas about sex, and we're going to read them here in 1 Corinthians 6 in just a moment. Um, but I want you to know what culture he was writing in, because when you hear what Paul says about sex, you're going to be like, ooh, that, that doesn't play so well in America in 2017. And it doesn't. It also didn't play well in the year 42 in Rome, either, when he was saying it. This is some challenging stuff. The Roman culture, in the the Roman Empire, the attitude about sex was, there's there's kind of two two main things, um, sort of sexually, that Christians ended up being very different than this, than the Roman culture. But the Roman culture believed, number one, that sex was about dominance, particularly for men. So, Men, uh, male sexuality in the Roman Empire was expressed as a way, like, you, you win on the battlefield, you win in the bedroom. So you, you win with your wife, then you have sex with a slave, a male or female slave, you have sex with a temple prostitute, you, you, um, you, can, you just show your dominance by, by being powerful and in charge. That was kind of the Roman attitude about, about sex. Um, in fact, it was even, rape was even okay. In that culture, as long as you rape someone of a lower social status than you and you, you continue to assert your dominance there, it was actually considered okay. Um, and that's, a, that's an idea that the, Ro- the Roman Empire had uh, about sex. And we hear that now and we go, man, that's, that's some rough stuff. Like, that's not appropriate at all. Like, that's not a way you should think about sex. And that, that's not good. But, but understand that if we were Roman citizens living in the first century, we would just think that's normal. We would just think this is just the way it is. Of course, everybody everybody does it. Everybody does it this way. This is what we do. And I, and I point that out just to say that we, we need to be very careful as we examine another culture another time, and really as we examine our own culture, we need to be careful of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, where we beat things down, we beat ideas down with a calendar, where we basically say, well, it's 2017, why would anybody believe that now? As if what year it is it ha- has a bearing on whether it's actually true or good or not. So we look back at the ancient world and they go, oh, they're terrible because they don't do things like we did, like we do today. Um, that's, not gonna, that's not necessarily going to fly because there are things we believe now, and this is an interesting thought experiment. What are the things we're believing now, sexually and otherwise, that a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, people are going to be like, people back in 2017 used to believe what? It's worth considering what are the ideas that we carry around with us, sexually and otherwise, that are really just products of the culture that we're in. And they're maybe not actually true or good. We just believe them because it's what everybody believes. So number one, Romans believe sex is about dominance. Number two, uh, the Roman culture had a very low view of women. And so women were slightly above a slave as, as a wife. And so you could leave your wife uh, pretty easily. Uh, you Cheating on your wife was... Pretty normal thing, um, and Christianity comes along, and it 's very different towards women. Christianity elevates women in a way the culture around it didn 't even understand in fact i 've heard sociologist Rodney Stark point out that if you became a Christian in the first century, if you 're a woman and you become a Christian, your life expectancy would immediately go up because you 'd be less likely to get an abortion and you 'd be more likely to be cared for and 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 loved by someone for the rest of your life. The Christian ethic uh, and the the way uh, Christians treated women in the ancient world was so much better than the, Ro- than the rest of the culture around it. Um, I, I want to show you this quote. This is from the second century. There's a guy named Minucius Felix, wrote a letter to Octavius. Minucius Felix is a Christian, and he's describing the Roman, different aspects of the Roman culture. And then at the very end, he's going to talk about how Christians were different. And there's a lot of s- stuff about incest in here, okay? So I want you to hear it and understand what the culture was like and how Christianity was different in its day. Listen to what he says. Um, Among the Persians, a promiscuous association between sons and mothers is allowed. Marriages with sisters are legitimate among the Egyptians and in Athens, Your records and your tragedies, which you both read and hear with pleasure, glory in incests. Thus also you worship incestuous gods who have intercourse with mothers, with daughters, with sisters. You can think of like uh, Zeus and Apollo and all those kind of stories, right? Uh, With reason, therefore, is incest frequently detected among you and is continually permitted. Miserable men, you may even, without knowing it, rush into what is unlawful. Since you scatter your lusts promiscuously, since you everywhere beget children, since you frequently expose even those who are born at home to the mercy of others, it is inevitable that you must come back to your own children and stray to your own offspring. Thus, you continue the story of incest, even even although you have no consciousness of your crime. And here's the difference, and he's a Christian, right? He says, but we maintain our modesty, not in appearance, but in our heart. We gladly abide by the bond of a single marriage. In the desire of procreating, we know either one wife or none at all. If you want to know why Christianity was persecuted in the first, second, and third centuries, it's, it's a lot of this. This is so subversive. This is so offensive to the Roman world that Christians would be like, no, you're actually just supposed to have sex with one person for life and just stay married. And the Roman world's like, that's ridiculous. Why would we do that? Right? And so there's a, a huge difference. Where did the ancient Christians get this idea? They got it from Paul. And, and his teaching. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll start with verse 12. All things, are law, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. He's, he's quoting, this is a letter, right? So he's quoting the other side, the recipients who are, who are sitting there going, all things are lawful for me. In other words, man, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Don't, don't give me all these rules and legalism and, and all that, like, heavy religion. I can do whatever I want. Paul says, sure, you can do whatever you want, but not everything's helpful. There are things that you can do that are going to be bad for you. Hey, all things are lawful for me, but he says, don't be enslaved by anything. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. This I can do whatever I want whenever I want ends up leading to a new form of slavery, and Paul calls that out. Verse 13, let's continue on. He says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Again, he's quoting them. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. This is a quote, In this is a popular phrase in Corinth in, in the first century. And it, it's the idea that, hey, this stuff is just natural. You're hungry, you should eat. You want to You're interested in having sex, you should just have sex. It's just a biological, natural itch that needs to be scratched. That's what people um believed in in that day and, and people uh have not believed that all throughout history at all times but they were believing that in that day and i would argue that there's a chunk of our society that believes that same thing that it's just uh, an itch that needs to be scratched you shouldn't suppress your sexual urges in any way um and and most of why we believe that today is because of freud so thanks freud um but, but in their culture, they're like, hey, this is just natural. And, and Paul says, no, God's going God's to gonna do away with that stuff. Um, there's actually something higher here in, in, in sex. The body is not meant, he says, for sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea, where we get our word porn from. And it, and it means sex outside the context of a man and woman in marriage. So, he, and that covers a lot of things, right? Cyber. Porn, uh, sexting, whatever—like uh, just adultery, just old school, right? Like hookups, all that kind of stuff. All of that uh, is covered in this idea of sexual immorality. And he says, your body—it's not meant for that. Not what, that's not what—that's not the way God designed you. Um, it's, it's actually meant to, to be connected to Him, and 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 for Him to be in a relationship with with you. Um, the Christian idea of the body is not that the body is dirty. That's kind of an old platonic idea from from greece the, the the idea of the body uh the christian idea of the body is that it's glorious and that it's a good thing and that it's it's supposed to be used to connect you relationally to god um, and and to others so continuing on verse 14 and god raised the lord and will also raise us up by his power now don't you think that's a weird thing to mention right there like I was reading this, I'm like, all right, we're talking about sexual immorality in the body, and then he goes on like, and Jesus rose from the dead. Cool. Uh, I don't know how that's related, but thanks for that, you know. And I was trying to figure out like, okay, why why does he put that little phrase right there in the middle? And I think what Paul's doing is he's anticipating the way you feel about it when you read it or when you hear this news for the first time. When he says, look, uh, you're not supposed to be having sex outside of marriage. You're going to go. I can't do that. I can't not look at porn. I can't. Not, I, I struggle with these things. These are all difficulties. I have these urges. You're going to say all of those things. You're going to feel all those things. And Paul just reminds us right here in the middle, hey, you know what? You have God at work in your life, and God had so much power. He brought Jesus back from the dead. The same power that brings Jesus back from the dead is at work inside of you also. So you can change. You can walk a different road. You 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 can. Do this because God is at work in, inside of you. Um, God's power, he, he will help you. So continue on then in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Okay, so temple prostitution is a a popular thing in the Roman world. And and Paul reminds us, especially, now he's writing to Christians, and he's saying to Christians, you are part of the body of Christ, this family, the family of God or in a relationship with God. You don't take the body of Christ and then go unite it with a prostitute. Um, And then he quotes Genesis, uh, for it is written, the two will become one flesh. That's talking about Adam and Eve, after Adam and Eve um, God put them on earth and, and it says that they, they become one flesh there 's this unity that happens within marriage, and he says you don 't just go take that one flesh thing and just pass that around to to anybody um, you don 't throw your body around that 's the christian view uh, of of sex the, the 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 view of sex here, the ethics around sex that paul 's articulating in in these in these verses, and then in the in the in the scripture altogether, uh, there's really like a couple main ideas about like what sex is. Because if if sex is not this thing you throw around easily, um, then then what is it? What is the Christian view of sex? And, and I and I wanted to talk about this because our culture's so confused around it, and I think sometimes the church, maybe not this church, maybe but historically the church is at least in the last couple decades, has gotten a little shy about talking about this stuff. And I just feel like, you know, our culture is so messed up around this. This is a time to boldly say, hey, this is the Christian worldview around this idea. Here it is. N- number one, sex is for procreation. Sex is designed, this should be fairly obvious, right? But sex is designed to make babies. It was actually the first thing God says to humanity, God makes Adam and Eve, puts them in the Garden of Eden. You can go back and look. This is the first chapter of the Bible. And he puts them in, in the Garden of Eden, and he tells them, go make more. I started with you two. You guys go make more. Like, be fruitful and multiply, is the way the old translation says of it. So God's first idea for humanity is to have sex. I think that's a pretty cool thing. I, uh, I think, I think we we're off to a really good start there. And he says, uh, I want you to go make more. That, that is what it's for, okay? Uh, now, I think the church particularly the medieval church, has gone pretty overboard on that and made it only about that. And if you're not trying to make a baby, you shouldn't be having sex, that kind of thing. Uh, That's a little silly and a a little offline because the Scripture actually, the Bible actually points us to other purposes for sex. And certainly there's plenty of people in this church now and in the past who have struggled with infertility. And so, fortunately, I I don't think sex is only about procreation and that the Scripture teaches that it's only that. A, A second purpose for sex is it's designed to be enjoyable. Sex is designed to be enjoyable, and there's two reasons for that. Number one, sex is designed to be enjoyable so that you'll actually do it. Because if it's not enjoyable, I think we all die off within a generation because nobody's doing it and we're not having more kids. Like It's like, he's like, I need you to make more, and actually I'll make it something you want to do so that more happens, right? Like that's part of God's design, right? It's designed to be enjoyable uh, so that you'll make more, but also it's designed to be enjoyable so that you're bonded together, so that two people can come together, and, and it's, it's designed to be a glue that, that, that enmeshes you in some way. Um, the new, the Old Testament celebrates this. The book Song of Solomon um, is, if you go back and read it, it, it's a book about two lovers talking back and forth. And there's some, by ancient standards, there's some pretty racy stuff in there. It wouldn't, it won't read that way to us now. It reads a little weird when we read it now, um, but it is celebrating love, and it is celebrating sex between, between these two lovers. And, um, and that's in the Bible, and it's in the Bible for a reason. It doesn't treat sex like it's dirty. It treats it like it's, it's supposed to be something that is um, in, enjoyed, and it's supposed to bond people together. This is why when, uh, we, ha- when we throw ourselves around sexually to multiple partners, um, it just brings pain. It brings pain. Because sex deeply connects you to someone else. It is intended to be like that. It is intended to be a glue. And you can't rip it apart. You can't have sex and then separate from someone without there being some damage done to you. Um, the, the, the idea that you can just have casual sex is really, um, it, it, it's a myth. It's a myth. There's nothing casual about it. Um, it was designed to be more than that. So, number one, sex is for procreation. Number two, it's designed to be enjoyable and and bond us together. And number three, sex points us to God. Sex points us to a God who designed something like that for our pleasure. Like, that's a pretty cool thing. Sex points us to, you know, points us to the idea that God, in His wisdom, when He was thinking up how we're going to be made, He said, here's something for you to enjoy. And we should thank Him for that. I, I write down three things I'm thankful for each morning. And sometimes I write down that I'm thankful for sex. If I had it, like, recently, I'll be like, hey, this is great. That's not inappropriate. It might be inappropriate for me to talk about it on stage. But it's not inappropriate. <laughs> it's not inappropriate, uh, actually. Like, I'm thanking God for one of his good gifts. That's okay. That, that's, that's a great thing. Uh, we, should ap- we should appreciate it. And, and, and when we experience it in the way God designed and we enjoy it, we should be able to thank God for what he's, what he's done. Um, but there's another aspect of how sex points us to God, and this is going to be a little weird. So, brace yourself. Uh, sex is very similar to communion. I'm just going to let that sit out there for a second. <laughs> when, when I first read that and, and looked into that, I was like, uh, wh- what? Like, that's a little weird. Um, but there's been some good writing on it. If you Google sex and communion, not images, just look, just, just you will find some articles from some church writings uh, of people talking about the connection. And basically, the idea is this, and I think it's actually a good one. Um, when we take communion, which we'll do here in a few minutes, you're going to take bread that represents the body of Christ. You're going to take juice. You're going to dip the bread in the juice. You're going to eat that and swallow it. So, there, it's tactile. There's a scent associated with it. There's a taste associated with it. It's, it's very physical, right? Um, the, the, the bread, the tearing of the bread, the, the, the juice, all that's a very physical thing. But Christians have always taught, although they've disagreed on the details, Christians have always taught that there's more going on in communion than just bread and juice. In the Catholic Church, the idea is that this, it, the bread and juice literally becomes the body and blood of Christ when you take it. Other denominations will say something more like, no, it's, it's, real, it's the presence of Christ. It's not actually Christ. Or others will say, no, it's, it's a memorial of Christ or it signifies Christ when we take it. But pretty much Christians agree that uh, the physical act of communion speaks to a greater spiritual reality. There's something else going on there. And in the same way, sex, although a physical thing, is, is bigger than that. There's a, there's a spiritual reality there. There's a connection to God. There's a, an enmeshing of your soul with another person. That's the way it was designed to be. There's something deeper happening there than just the physical things. Um, and so sex also uh, points, us, points us to God. And, and just how in the New Testament we're told to take communion to remember, and so we take it every week as a church. If you read on in 1 Corinthians 7, the next chapter, Paul tells married couples to have sex. Just not like, you know, it doesn't have to be every day, it doesn't have to be all the time or whatever, but like regularly so that you continue to build up that bond and you continue to, um, continue to work on that glue. It's not the most important thing ever, but it is important and it needs to be part of, of, of marriage. So what does all of that mean? Um, I, I think basically this, uh, the ancient view around sexuality is, is a very high view of sex You can't ever say, if you're going to take the ancient view of sex that Paul's speaking of here, you can't just say, oh, it was just sex. Just sex is is not a a thing. You can't have the just in there because there's more going on. And that should make us think very carefully about who we ever have sex with. Our culture wants to separate sex from marriage, separate sex from procreation, separate sex from divinity, um, separate sex really from a lot of the Bonding aspect to some degree, and our culture wants to say no. Sex is not a, all those things. It's just recreation. It's just an itch. It's just an urge to scratch. It's just something meant to be fun, um, and and that's really because of that separation. it's really how we get a lot of the problems that we see now. Now you might think, man, Chris this is 2017. This sounds naive. This sounds old school. Come on, we live in the real world. We got everyone's got to take care of the, their business, and this is you know, and and we, you may think that way. Um, about sex, and this may sound prudish to you or, or whatever, but I just want you to imagine you're God for a second, and you look down at the world as it is today. Do you think God is saddened by the Me Too hashtag? I think He is. I think He's angered by it and, and maybe saddened by what we do to each other. And so God looks down at that and is like, Ugh, what, what, are, what are we doing? Why are we harassing and abusing people? You think God looks down and sees... Um, Kids growing up without a mother and a father because dad just wanted to have sex with her and then leave and didn't want to stick around and be a dad. Do you think God looks down at that? Is kind of saddened by that and says, "Oh man, what what are they doing?" Do you think? Uh, do you think all the ways that we're using sex outside of marriage, whether it's pornography or or all the different things that are going on and how that's affecting marriages and all that, all that stuff? Do you think God looks down on that and is saddened and maybe frustrated by it? Yeah, and so if you're God and you know how humanity works, what what advice, if you're God, what advice would you give to humanity about how they should handle sex, knowing this is the culture and this is what's going on? Would you look down at the world and go, sex is powerful, guys, so um, don't have sex till you're ready. Is that the advice you would give if you're God? Would you look down and be like, "Uh, sex is really powerful, guys, Um, just make sure that you have sex with someone that you love. No, I don't think that's what you would say, knowing all the damage that's done when people take it out of context. I think you would say what, what Paul says here in verse 18. We'll kind of wrap up with this. Verse 18 continues Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He doesn't say dance around sexual immorality sex outside of marriage. He doesn't say play around with it, try it on a little bit, just, you know, get some experience. You got you to gotta try it to know how, No, he doesn't say any of that. He says flee from it. Run away. Go an entirely different direction around this stuff. Because, not because sex is bad, because it's good and it's powerful. And if you use it outside of the context of marriage, um, It's going to do some damage to you and to others. This isn't God trying to ruin your fun. This is God trying to protect you and bring you the most joy possible. Now, my guess is that you have a lump that you have a lump in your throat today, like I do, and you sort of go, "Ugh, I've blown it, man. This is this is an area where I've I've messed up. Um, My, my, you know, I've sinned sexually." A year ago, a, m- a month ago, a week ago, 10 hours ago, whatever. Like, this is an area that we know, okay, I'm, I've, I've handled this differently in the past. Um, and, and that's all of us, right? We're, we're all in that together. There's, no one's perfect. Um, no one is sinless according to Scripture. Um, I, had a, I had a friend on Facebook email me about three weeks ago, and it's a guy I went to college with, and we've talked maybe once in the last 20 years but we're Facebook friends, and he sends me a message sometime in the middle of the night. He sends me a message on Facebook, and he just uh, starts ripping me for sexual sins of mine back in college and says, oh, you did this. You're a hypocrite. And I felt bad about it. I was like, man, I haven't talked to this guy in years, and this is what he brings up? Like, he, this is what he thinks of me when he thinks 20 years later, when he remembers Chris Barris, he remembers ways I blew it 20 years ago. Um, And I felt bad about it, but what I want to tell you is that my past is not perfect either. But it is forgiven. And when I think back on that stuff, I believe I've been forgiven by God for ways that I've messed up. Um, And I want you to know that that forgiveness is available for you also. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, your past doesn't have to define your future on this. So number one, here's three steps, and then we're done. Number one, confess where you've blown it. And receive God's forgiveness. Come to him and say, man, this is what I've done. This is what I've been doing. I I don't want to do that anymore. And receive his forgiveness. Number two, link up with another person. Men, find another man to talk to and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Women, find another woman to talk to and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. This is where I'm at. Um, Most people are not going to look at you like you're crazy. They're going to be like, yeah, I get it. Like, I understand. And let me walk that that thing with you. So link up with another person if you want to be healed and free. And number three, walk a different road. Scripture calls Christians to repent, to, to turn away, to, to not follow after sin anymore, but go a different direction. That's what we're called to. And I'm not preaching this to the whole world. I'm not out there going, the, the world needs to change its ways or whatever. I'm talking to me, and I'm talking to us as, a, as the church family. Um, we need to walk a different road here. We need to walk a countercultural road here because our culture is all jacked up on this topic. Um, And we need to articulate and advocate for a a different ethic, an ancient one that actually worked then and still works uh, today. Last thing is, if you're not a Christian and you're here maybe for the first time, um, I bet you think what I just said is crazy. (laughs) Uh, And I I totally get that. Um, I know what world we live in. Um, I understand how television, how media portrays all of these things. Um, but let me just give you this. Let me just challenge you with this. Even if you're not a Christian, even, and even if you don't want to be, even if you're sitting here saying, I don't want to follow God, the Bible. I'm going to have to believe the earth was created six days, and it's weird, and, and there's all weird stuff in the Old Testament. And even if you don't want to believe any of that, let me just suggest that if you follow Jesus on this topic, it'll go well for you. Not perfect. We all struggle. Even Christians do not handle all this stuff perfectly. We're, we're all we're all sinners in need of grace moving forward. But it, I, I truly believe that following Jesus is the best way uh, and, and will lead to a better life, and it will make you better at living your life. So, so even walk, you even walk a different road on this. Try this countercultural road and see if you don't find some hope and some healing in, in all of this as well. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the challenge from Paul and his words that probably stung the church of Corinth and they still sting us today um, because they articulate an ethic that that doesn't fit with the culture that we live in. And so, God, I pray you help us to be brave, courageous people who walk a different road. Help us to be honest with where we're at, honest with our friends, um, and get real, God. Help us to get real with one another and um, and 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 be healthy and whole again. God, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your grace um, that washes over us and can make us new and, and clean and can restore us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.